This is Jim Minns and you're listening to Minimal. My guest this week is author and journalist, Sean Kelly. Okay, I'm here with the author of The Game, a portrait of Scott Morrison, Mr. Sean Kelly. Thank you for joining me on Minimal. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, mate, it's great. It's a pleasure. Congratulations on the book. <laughs> I, had, I finished it last week. It's a, it's a riveting read. It's, um, mate, it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a brutal takedown. Oh, look, look thanks, thanks for reading it. It's, um, you know, it's my first book, so it's, uh, it's still a real thrill. I know that will sound silly and trite and cliche, but it's still a real thrill when you, uh, you see people receiving it in their mail or, or you know, copies or, or you just hear that somebody's read it. So, really, thanks. No, you're very welcome. I didn't realise it was your first book. Uh, it's written like a pro. Obviously, you've got a, uh, a very storied, uh, excuse the pun, uh, history as a journalist now, uh, moved on from uh, your time in Rudd and Gillard's office, you refashioned yourself as a journalist is that right going going on your background yeah yeah i mean look look i i uh, i'm always a bit reluctant to cast myself entirely as a uh, as a journalist because a lot of what i do is commentary um, but there, certainly there have been spots of journalism in there sure um so yeah i, I worked I, you know i actually started my career a very long time ago as a very minor very junior journalist uh, and quickly moved into political advising uh, worked for Nicola Roxon when she was health minister, and then worked for Kevin Rudd for a year before he was removed by Julia Gillard, who I then worked for. And then, yeah, then I then I went into um, writing columns uh, here and there. Ended up writing a daily column for the monthly, which sounds ridiculous, but that's that's what I did. Uh, and that was, that was that was fantastic, actually, like getting to watch and interpret the day to day developments in politics. People always used to say to me, "How do you, how do you get together a daily column? Like, there can't be enough material." But actually, the beauty of writing a daily column was there were these there were these multiple plot lines, if you like. There were these different stories sure. that you could like, grab hold of on any one day. Yeah. Right now, I write a, a weekly column for Sydney Morning Herald and the Age, and that yeah, a weekly column is much harder. It turns out. Yeah, I love your weekly column. By the way, it's uh, it's very nuanced and. Um uh, it's 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 you know because you would, I mean, as a former Labor staffer, you'd feel like you'd kind of get pigeonholed until you read your work and you realise that you're not. Yeah, thank, no, thanks, Jim. It's it was a really it was a really difficult thing to transition from working for the ALP to trying to write, uh, you know, in as even-handed a manner I, as I could about politics. And mm. it's a tricky thing because you don't want to leave your own beliefs about the world behind I think uh, you know that can be destructive as well mm. um, but I, I think it is still you know ev- everyone you know tills tills their own field or, or whatever the expression is but for me it was very important not to become uh, very predictable in what you write and I, I don't mean you take a position for the sake of it what I mean is um, you are willing to criticize uh, any party you are uh, trying to um, see what the facts tell you about the world rather than fit the facts to an existing story you have about the world. Because I think when you do about that, when you do that, then you're just telling the same story week in, week out, and, and you know, repurposing whatever happens to have happened that week uh, to tell the story that you want to tell. And I don't, think that's, um, I don't think that's ultimately very enlightening. So absolutely, I've, I've tried to... Uh, to go down the middle in terms of treating the different political parties fairly, uh, 
but you know, it, it's obvious enough in my writing that I, I have my own beliefs about the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, moving, you know, I have taken that from your weekly column, but moving into now your book, it's pretty obvious where you stand uh, on the side of uh, whether or not Scott Morrison will be taken seriously as a prime minister of great respect and envy of the world or not. Um, mm. But, uh, you know, and I've got to talk to you about this because, you know, having read your book, uh, going into, the, and I'm a former Labor staffer myself, I uh, worked for Bill Shorten, uh, which uh, we, I spoke to you about on email. I w- went into this book absolutely uh, hating Scott Morrison, uh, mm. but, but I don't know Scott Morrison. You know, I've, I have no mm. contact with the man. I'm hating a caricature that's, that, that I've built up in my head as, as you know, an adversarial right. enemy because I was on the other lines. We fought an election against him. I have preconceived notions of who this man is. Your, um, your takedown, um, it, it's based on, the research is based on a, a lot, of extensive research of a lot of articles that you've read to get into who this man is without getting a first-hand account. I, do you believe it's surface level or are you convinced that you've gone deeper? Oh, look, I, look it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of... Both and, and look, I'm not to be not to be argumentative, but but I personally wouldn't describe it as a takedown. And the reason for that is um, that I I set out, I, I guess, to try to answer certain questions about Scott Morrison because I found it perplexing that there was this guy who didn't interest a lot of people, uh, who who a lot of people didn't have a lot of affection for, but mostly they weren't that interested in him. And yet somehow he'd become prime minister. He'd become prime minister in strange circumstances, you know, and he'd won an election that nobody expected him to win. And there was something about him that still seemed to repel interest. So I kind of set out to try to find what, what it was about Scott Morrison that had managed to do that. And, and also what that might say about the rest of us, you know, why weren't we more interested in Scott Morrison. Uh, so I was trying to answer those questions. And in trying to answer that, what I realized about Scott Morrison, uh, and, and I think this has become more obvious with time, is that uh, in many ways, he is an image. Uh, what he has constructed for us is a particular image. You know, this is Daggy Dad persona, the guy who loves the sharks. Uh, it, it's very, uh, you know, it, it's almost iconic. It's, it's that well known now. Um, but it, is an image, it is a performance. And so in some ways, the analysis um, is at that surface level. I think it's really important to look at that surface level to understand what that performance is is, and how it was put together because I think the performance, the success of it, the effectiveness of it was really crucial to Scott Morrison's success in a 2019 election. I don't think he would have won without that surface level persona that he put on for us all. Uh, but then I, I do try to work from that surface into something deeper uh, because I think I think when you are looking at anyone in public life, any any type of celebrity, if you like, a performer, an actor, a comedian, uh, and a politician, if they have acted a certain way for long enough in their life, then, then I think one of two things: either that tells you who they were to begin with. Uh, they're doing that, they're performing that way because that's who they really are. Or if you act a role for long enough, I think eventually that does take over and becomes who you are. Mm. So I think one way or another, paying 
attention to that surface level, the patterns in it over a long period of time, the habits that we see develop in Scott Morrison do tell us something about the real person underneath. And, and so the book tries to, to do both of those things but asks how they relate to each other. In, absolutely. In one uh, area of the book you mentioned, I think it was an anecdote brought to your attention from Nick Xenophon where they had a – I think it was Nick Xenophon. He had a passing moment with Morrison pre, you know, Prime Ministerial Morrison mm. and it's almost like the – I feel like the mask slipped when Morrison – I'm not giving away too much about the, about the book mm. – uh, let, let Xenophon know that um, I don't have a coffee – I'm not going to have a coffee with you, mate. My role here is purely transactional. Yeah, it was, it was fascinating because it's a story that Xenophon told to Catherine Murphy, the Guardian journalist, and uh, they had worked together, Xenophon and Morrison, on various bits of legislation, trying to get them through the Senate, and and then Mor- Xenophon approaches Morrison after a parliamentary vote, you know, in, in the floor, uh, in, the, in the central part of Parliament House, and says, "Mate, should we have a coffee?" And Morrison says, "What for?" And Xenophon mm. says, "Well, just to you know, to talk about a couple of policy things." I thought we got on well. And as you say, Morrison kind of laughs and says, mate, I'm purely transactional. I think, you know, most of us, when we're nice to somebody, um, we're nice to them again. The next time we see them, we're probably nice to them again. And sometimes we turn our backs on someone. You know, we've all done it at some point in our life, but most of the time we try to keep these things up. And uh, I think that is because we, we see that life is a continuous thing. You know, we know that one moment is joined up to the next. But I think... That moment, when you tie it to other patterns in Morrison's life, that moment suggests to me that he's able to completely separate one moment from another. He's able to act in one moment uh, the way that he needs to act to be nice to Nick Xenophon, and in the next moment, he's able to say, not, not having coffee, I'm purely transactional. Mm. And for him, for him, there's not really an inconsistency. Mm. For him, each moment stands by itself. And you, you often see this in his, in his public Statements. I think this is this has come up a lot in the last couple of weeks in the kind of free publicity tour Scott Morrison's given my book, uh, in which he's been, which he, which he says, you know, I've never said something that he's very obviously said. Like when he when he said he'd never said Shanghai Sam about Sam Bastiari, mm-hmm. and he said it seventeen times, seventeen times. Mm. You know, I think at some point you have to say that tells you something about the way a politician sees the world. Mm, absolutely. Uh, there's a large chunk of your book, sorry, not a large, but there's a portion of your book uh, dealing with his time as the immigration minister and obviously some some horrific incidents, uh, sorry, as the shadow immigration minister and some horrific incidences were happening um, uh, during that time. And it's almost as if um, Morrison's training in marketing uh, was, was helping his sort of transactional approach to people's lives it's almost that's what you're alluding to in that you know um there was a situation where a boat crashed on christmas island and the australian government were in a position to fly some families over for funeral expenses Mm. and morrison was dead set against the idea in your book um and then relented uh but was was fearful that that his conservative supporters might take that as sign as a sign of weakness that he's relent, relent, like he's, mm. is that right? Is his ability to go backwards on a, on a, on a forced stance to allow people to attend a funeral be seen as weak in, in the, in the eyes of the uh, electorate? Uh, I mean, I mean, there are different elements going on there. I mean, that particular element was about protesting uh, the fact that people were being buried on the mainland and therefore that, 
taxpayers will be paying for the costs of paying families to the funerals. Uh, and, you know, he was making these protests on the day of the funerals, the day before the funerals. Uh, and um, that's, a, that's a pretty, I mean, I think it's, it's absolutely reasonable to say that is a callous thing to do. Uh, and then he, he, yes, he gives this interview and he... Um, it was with Ray Hadley, I believe, in the book, with, you're saying. Yeah, yeah, with Ray Hadley. And he kind of uh, almost apologises, doesn't quite apologise, yeah, but, uh, but, but says he regrets the timing of the comments. Uh, but but he's very defensive. You know, he says, you know me, Ray, I'm always strong on this issue. I don't want to leave anything on the field. People know that I'll, I'll uh, you know, take, take it up to the final quarter, uh, that type of thing. Um, as if he's worried that, that this minor, minor back down he's making will somehow uh, discourage people from, from voting for him. Mm. And look, I, I think he probably was reflecting the views of, of some Australians. Uh, I, th- I think, you know, and then it's true, there were, there, were, there were talkback callers calling in who were angry as well. But this is, this is, I think, an important fact about politics and the responsibility of politicians. There are lots of views out there in the Australian community. Mm. You know, there are, there are people this past week, uh, you know, protesting in Victoria and talking about... Uh, killing politicians. Mm. Um, the, the role of politicians is to make very careful decisions about which views to amplify and which views not to amplify. And I think the decision to amplify and encourage anger about refugees being able to attend the funerals uh, of, uh, of their relatives is... Um, uh, I mean, I, I find it a pretty, uh, a pretty terrifying development in our politics. And I'm not sure politics has got a lot better since that awful incident 10 years ago. Well, I mean, Sean, you were in the game during that time period, you know, as a staffer, uh, quite a senior staffer as well. And that was the game, wasn't it? It was all immigration all the time, pretty much from 2001 to Tampa onwards. Um, what is that, what, what is that sort of discourse, what has that turned our parliament into now that we've got, it's led to the ascension of someone like Scott Morrison? I think it's been a really, I think that aspect of Australian public debate has been really horrible. Uh, and I think that um, politicians really let Australia down and I think the media let Australia down to a very large extent because I think uh, a lot of the discussion about this issue has taken place through the prism of what is strategically useful, what is tactically clever. Uh, you know, I, I think when Howard first began to really uh, make, you know, pl- play politics in this area, um, there was there was a really visceral response against that from some quarters of Australia and some quarters of the media. And then with time, I think that politicians who chose to play politics around refugees were kind of let off the hook because people saw what Howard did and then decided this was how the game is played. And at that point, when you begin, like politics is always going to be talked about in terms of strategy to some extent, but when the dominant frame for understanding matters of life and death becomes strategy and tactics and whether this will help you win the next election, Mm. then I think we've reached a really worrying point. And you could see that in the debate around Medivac 
uh, a couple of years ago. You know, this was a debate about whether refugees should be should have better access to emergency healthcare. Mm. Emergency healthcare. Uh, so we we were talking about situations of life or death, and uh, you know, in at least one case, it was literally a matter of life or death, and. Um, and a refugee died, and, and he died because he couldn't get the care that he needed uh, on uh, in offshore detention, mm. and um, and because there were bureaucratic holdups, uh, and uh, that's and and then that issue ended up being talked about in terms of whether or not it would help Scott Morrison win the twenty nineteen election. Mm. I mean that is um that. That is a morally bankrupt place to have reached. Yeah, yeah. And yet here we are. I mean, it's interesting though, you know, the the whole book deals with the with Morrison's attempt to reinvent his image post those years, um, and and you know, remaining quite a mysterious figure, but dropping a lot of sort of hints at his uh, attempts at reinvention in a lot of interviews, name dropping the sharks at the end, unprovoked un- or, or unasked for his opinion mm. on the bushfire crisis in your book. Um, you know, his ability to set the agenda of talking points went out the window uh, and the photo mm-hmm. ops and, 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 and the forced handshakes, all those marketing tricks backfired on him. Do you think that was, I mean, that was an interesting kind of a wake up call, do you think? Do you, what kind of effect do you reckon that had on him? I, I'm not sure it's had an enormous effect, but it was fascinating. And it was, uh, it was fascinating because I, I think what happened is that Scott Morrison is very good at playing the game of politics and his approach to politics is to treat it like a game. The treated as a series of tactics or strategies, that, uh, and you could see him cycle through those during the bushfire crisis. You know, he's, he started out with a with an apology. He didn't just apologise on behalf of himself. He, he looped other people into that. You know, we're sorry. He held photo ups. He produced an ad when they finally announced they would do something. Um, all of these things backfired on him, but he kept cycling through tactics that he'd used before, and finally he found one. Uh, that he's used on multiple occasions, which is to find another villain, in this case, arsonist and, and greenies blocking uh, fuel reduction. It's, it's what, he, it's what uh, a lot of people said at that time. Mm. And he pinned the blame on, on them. And he does, he does this again and again. He kind of conjures up these fake villains mm. and then tries to direct public anger towards them. Mm. But before he did that, before he was able to kind of reestablish the game, I think what happened is that, he ran up against a situation where Australians were reminded that politics isn't a game. You know, most of us can forget about, uh, not everyone, absolutely not everyone, but many Australians can forget about politics a lot of the time and can can afford to treat it as a game. But uh, in those moments, everyone remembers that politics is actually this deadly serious pursuit with deadly serious consequences. Mm. And so I think it's very telling that that, is the moment, one of the moments at which Scott Morrison really struggled, uh, when it was obvious to everyone that politics wasn't a game. Uh, but then, then to your question, Jim, did he, did he learn anything from that? Uh, I, I really don't think that he did. And, and part of the reason that he didn't is because he did eventually find a way to turn it back in his favour. And then, um, and then COVID came along and, um, you know, we're not yeah, talking about the bushfires anymore. Right. But another interesting kind of drop of the Morrison mask in your book was the Brittany Higgins story that emerged from Parliament House um, under his watch. Morrison's entire approach to that uh, situation seemed off from a media standpoint. And 
uh, you know, I, I, from my perspective, he took a sort of conciliatory approach to it until uh, it was brought to him by journalist Andrew Clennell in your book. Uh, the the question around um, the standards of Parliament and whether or not Morrison's uh, team and Morrison himself, I guess, hold a certain standard that the workplace of that the workplaces of Australia can aspire to. Morrison was very offended at the question, and and it was weird. It was a weird mm. mass drop. It was a weird mass drop. What's your take on it? It, it was. I mean, he he kind of lashed out, and he he talked about. Um, workplace conditions in in Clonell's workplace, and talked about a complaint that had supposedly Weird. been made. Yeah, yeah, and and look, all of this turned out to be false. Um, you know, the, he'd, he'd mangled the story completely. It wasn't about Clonell's workplace. Um, but why was uh, this, this going through his head at all? Does it? Does, well, does it te- exactly. It, I, I think it tells us that when Scott Morrison is under political pressure, uh, he struggles, and, and, and it's a particular type of struggle. You know, some people will go to pieces, go to water. He doesn't do that. He lashes back, and he lashes back, and, and I think it's a sign of vulnerability. I think it's a sign, uh, you know, it's one of those things where somebody feels vulnerable and then, then hits back as hard as they can. Um, and so in this case, he's under pressure. Everything is not working for him. Uh, he's, uh, his political persona is, is the, you know, is the, Daggy dad is, is under threat because he's trying to use his identity as a husband and a father, but even that's being attacked in the media. Mm. Uh, so nothing's working for him. And his response is to, is to try to intimidate the media, it seems. Mm. Uh, and but do you, think, do you think it was knee-jerk? Do you think he's like he was already down the rabbit hole of attacking Andrew Clonell before he realised exactly what he was saying in public and by that mm. stage the genie was out of the bottle? It's very hard to tell. I, I don't. I don't know. Um, his emotions certainly seem knee-jerk, and, and we have seen that type of reaction from him before to journalists when he's when he's really being questioned. Because this is one of the dominant facts of Scott Morrison's career. He has largely, throughout most of his career, uh, succeeded in getting journalists to tell the stories that he wants them to tell. Mm. So when that stops working for him, I think he experiences that as a as a major personal threat. Mm. Mm. Uh, so look, I, I can see him responding to a situation like that in a knee jerk fashion, but I I can't tell you exactly you know whether that was uh, pre uh, pre arranged or not. Yeah. Towards the end of the book, you say um, you, you, you take a quote from someone. Excuse me, the the, the memory spaced on on who you were taking the quote from, but it, it words mm. to the effect of you know if if where if it turns out that Morrison, you know, was this evil sort of demigod and 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 we had knowledge of it, uh, you know, but we mm. voted for him anyway. What does this say about us? Shouldn't we have um, known that about him based on his actions anyway? And we're going to vote for him regardless. Mm. Um, uh, that, I think you mentioned that in specifics to uh, the Brittany Higgins uh, uh, alleged rape. Um, that if Morrison, if we, if it is discovered that Morrison knew uh, or had knowledge of it beforehand and sat on it, what does that tell us about him that we don't already know based on his actions? Well, yeah, I, I think you know, and of course they say we we don't know these things, and, and we're probably um, 
you know, in regards to the, the Brittany Higgins point, that's unlikely to actually be the case. My point, I, I guess, is that um, it's a tricky thing to try to write about a sitting prime minister or, or any politician who's currently in the parliament, and to try to decide what matters because you can you can try to hunt for some real person, but but I think at some point that that can become a bit of an alibi. It can become a way of searching for some some other person beyond what they've done in public and said in public over a long period of time. You know, Scott Morrison, like any Prime Minister, has been on public display for a long time. And so I think we have to ask ourselves the question, if, if we are still trying to find some other Scott Morrison, um, why... Why are we ignoring what is right in front of our face? Why are we ignoring all the things he said and done in public? Uh, because the, the thing about my book is I very deliberately don't try to hunt down um, obscure facts about him. Uh, my, my point is, and it's a challenge to all of us, is, is this stuff is there. It's on the public record. Uh, and if we choose not to see it, then we need to ask ourselves why we make that choice. And, and what that says about our approach to politics, what what it is that we're willing to accept and what it is that we're not willing to accept. And, you know, I, I, I think one of the important things to recognise about Scott Morrison and his approach to politics is that uh, while elements of it I very obviously find very frustrating, uh, he is not unique. Mm. He is merely... Uh, the, the perfect specimen of where our politics has reached. He is an incredibly gifted player of the game that politics has become. Uh, and so that's why uh, we need to look at what, he, what his actions tell us about him and we need to look at what our acceptance of those actions tell us about our own approach to politics. Oh, look, I'm so glad you're here because my question was completely bu- dropped the ball on that one because <laughs> your eloquence oh, is exactly where I was trying to trying to go to sort of bring your point across. Um, you know, your book is so timely, obviously, because, um, you know, Morrison's kicked off the game now, essentially, without kicking off the game. He hasn't blown the whistle yet. The ref hasn't blown the whistle, but we're effectively somewhat in campaign mode. Uh, reading the book and seeing in real time the, the game being played is quite amazing the the script being played out before your very eyes you know what's your take on the emmanuel macron um attempted uh creation of a villain uh that mm. you, you so eloquently put in your previous answer up on full display yeah i mean the macron thing was was this it was this incredible coincidence happening at the time my book was being released yeah uh, i mean there were two elements to it one was i think we saw again uh, this ability that Scott Morrison has to say one thing in the moment without uh, without really worrying about what he's said in the past or worrying what might be the truth is. He can convince himself of the truth in a moment. And then the, the other element is that he, um, you know, Macron criticised Morrison and he, he very specifically says, I have enormous respect for Australians. Uh, but then... Um, Morrison says, well, Scott Morrison says, Macron has uh, slurred all Australians, and I, I won't have that slur on Australian stand. So he's kind of, he's created this fake villain of Macron as this anti-Australian guy, which mm-hmm. is very explicitly not what Macron was saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and look, this is all tied uh, in, in a way to 
Morrison's use of China as a villain. Now, uh, I, I don't want to fall on the trap of defending China here. I think there are, I mean, there are obviously enormous problems uh, with China's approach to the world and approach to uh, some of its own people. Um, but there is also a, a respect in which Scott Morrison's rhetoric around China uh, fits this kind of binary view of the world that he often sets up mm. of, of, of heroes and villains. Uh, and I think it's, it's important to be alert to that. Sean, does Scott Morrison believe in anything? <sighs> I, I mean, in a, yes, yes, he does. He, he has very sincere religious beliefs, very sincere. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind about that. Um, and, and then there's a question of, of does he want to do anything with his beliefs? Does he want to... Uh, does he believe that Australia, that in anything, I'll rephrase, does he, does he want any belief to be made solid in Australia? Does he want to create anything in this country? Does he want uh, to make anything happen? I mean, no, no. He believes, and I guess this is a firm belief, uh, he believes that Australia is perfect as it is, that nothing needs to change. Uh, and you know that's a, that's a tremendously soothing message for many many Australians. Even even Australians who might disagree with it at an intellectual level, who might hear that phrase and think, "Well, I, I obviously don't agree with that." Of course, changes need to be made. I think at an emotional level, it still really registers for for many many people. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think I think he believes things are fine as they are. Sean Kelly, author of The Game: A Portrait of Scott Morrison. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you, Jim. 